Thank you, guys. Well, welcome to the house of the Lord today. Amen. You know, this is, this is a physical house, but you are the house of the Lord, by the way. So welcome, house of the Lord, to this physical house of the Lord. We're glad to be here today. Let me get my notes out before I don't. And I uh, have a couple of, of things to talk about here today before we get really started into the message. Um, if we will, Rachel, can you play that video for us? Is that up? Praise the Lord, our Father's house. I want... I'm going to start this over again so you guys can all hear it. This came... I'll just preface this really quickly. This came to me via messenger this week. It's a message from uh, Bishop Samuel, who many of you know. Um, some of you know him personally. Others of you have heard about him. Some of you have no clue who he is, and I'm showing you this for the first time. Uh, so we'll explain it here in a moment. But I was just delighted. This is unsolicited. It came to me, and I wanted to share it with you because this is his heart for you, and you need to hear his words. Go ahead. Praise the Lord, our Father's house. I want to thank you, each one of you, who has been sacrificially giving to support our Guru Guru children education, feeding them and buying material, paying teacher salaries, and making the school running. Thank you for supporting high school children. Thank you for supporting those who are going to polytechnics. Thank you for supporting those who are going to colleges and even some to universities. You have played a big role through your sacrifice and partnership in this great work of God. You have enabled us to reach people for Jesus. We have planted new churches. We have built shelters. We have built permanent church buildings. We are supporting our pastors in the villages where things are too difficult. Thank you, our Father's house, for making it possible. And I pray God's blessings be upon each one of you who love the Lord and who love the work of God. Thank you. May the Lord remember you and bless you. I miss each one of you. God bless you. Amen. Now, in case this is the first time you have heard from Bishop Samuel, he is a minister in Kenya, uh, in the area just outside Mombasa. Um, he's, he spoke here about the, the Guru Guru School in Mariakani. Uh, that's that's been our one of our major areas that we've been giving into now as a people for several years. He is a wonderful man of God, a faithful man of God. He preaches the gospel fiercely. I don't know if you follow him on Facebook, but you see him up there preaching. He is he is going for it, and and he brings people to the Lord. Not only does he do that, he builds and plants churches throughout the countryside there in Kenya. And many of you have partnered with him and us over the years to support the work that the Lord is doing there. So I just was so delighted for him to 
to send this message to us, and you needed to hear that from him. I can, I can relay that to you, but what better than to hear it from him? And, uh, you know, I, was, I had a, a wonderful conversation with him following it. Uh, just great to talk with him, and we were speaking. It's amazing, this wonderful world we live in now. We're, we're speaking face-to-face, Kenya to California, Maryland, in real time, and just asking him about how things are going there. Uh, they're in the middle of drought and famine there in a major way. Those of you who are friends with him on Facebook and are friends with him outside of that context as well likely know that already. But they are in incredible famine. They're trying to get uh, food and water to different parts of the countryside. And that is it's a very challenging effort. Uh, but his, I, I'm, I'm so amazed every time I speak with him because even in the midst of that great physical trial, he is joyful and just, just incredibly positive about the work of the Lord that he's doing there in and amongst the people. I asked him in our conversation, I said, just out of curiosity, how many other churches are, are partnering with you to, to do the work there? He said, it's our Father's house. Now, there may be some other people that are also giving as well. I don't want to discount that, and he, and he mentioned that. But from a church standpoint... You, our Father's house, are the major contributors to the work that the Lord is doing there in Kenya through Bishop Samuel. You need to know that. I I didn't know that. I was unaware. I knew that we were faithful in giving, but I didn't realize just the importance that the Lord has placed on this house as a major source of, of, of resourcing and funding and prayer over the work that's being done there. So when he says here, we have planted churches, he's saying... We have planted churches because we are partnered with the work that he is doing there. Now, we are helping to agree with what the Lord has given that man a mission and a dream to do, and it is incredibly effective. He's planted churches in places where it was just desolate land, and now there's churches there, and there's people being, being fed both spiritually and physically, in the midst of trying, trying times. I went back and I had, I had Ruth pull up some of our, our recent financials on this. Because I, said, I just want to know, how much have our people given? You guys need to hear this. Okay? And I'm, I'm not going all the way back to the beginning. I'm just talking in recent years here, okay? And Brian, Brian, raise your hand. This connection comes to us through Brian. And that's the way we build at our Father's house. We build relationally. And this is a relationship between, uh, between Brian and Bishop Samuel that came to us, and it became an opportunity in the Lord for us to help resource the kingdom in an amazing way. You know, God, God gives to us so that we can feed into what he's doing. He takes care of us in the process, but he does it so that he can feed into what he's doing. When we offer our tithes and offerings and things back to the Lord, it's to build the kingdom. It's to show him that we recognize he is our source. And we just... We just keep giving back to him, and we keep applying his resources where he tells us to do it. And many of you have had this burden for Kenya. So just this year alone, 2021, you guys have given, uh, as of last count, 10... Oh, sorry, let me pull this over here. $15,720.75. We are... Yes. And we are only two-thirds through the year. So I said, Ruth, the past five years, not counting 2021, how much have we given in total as a people to the work done there? This is astounding. And again, this is not 
the totality of everything we've given over time. And this is you. This is your giving, okay? This isn't the church organization giving. This is you, the people of God, giving to the work of God. So the five years preceding this year, 91657 and 85 cents. How many of you know that goes a long way in a place like Kenya? And we are giving that to a faithful man, a minister of the gospel, God's representative in that region who's changing lives, both spiritually and physically. We're giving to education of people. We're looking to, to build out generations here. We've, we have given to... Um, to provide vehicles for pastors so they can actually get around and minister to people. There's, we've, we've given monies for, for animals to, to build economies. We've, we've poured out over and over and over again. What an incredible gift. What an incredible blessing that's come through you, our Father's house. So all told, over those past six years, leading into this year, we've given over $107,000 Praise God. Praise God. And I just want to bless you and commend you as a people for the, the heart and the spirit of generosity. There's people that are watching online right now that are, that are participated in this. I just bless you guys. That is incredible. And I want you to know, this is only one of the ministries that we give to internationally. Many of you have also faithfully given to Cuba and Ukraine over the years. In other places, as the Lord has, has given us the insight, the relationships to build into. So I just want to, again, commend you as a people. If you've never given or you would like to give and you hear this today and you say, wow, they're, they're in drought, they're in famine, they're trying to get food, they're trying to get water to different places. And ultimately, the, the only way they can get more of that right now is money. Okay? And so if it's on your heart to give today, I'd encourage you to give. You can give through our, our, um, our website, go into our giving page, and you can find the link there for Kenya. And I encourage you to continue to pour into this ministry. It is a powerful ministry. And the Lord, the Lord keeps account of these things. He sees how we're giving. He sees how we are providing and resourcing to the places that he leads us to. So I just encourage you to do that. And, uh, and also, more important than the giving is your prayers for rain in Kenya, that this drought would be broken, that this famine would be lifted, that, that we would see an outpouring of the Lord's rain over this region, and that his blessing would continue to be conspicuous among his people. All right? Let's pray right now. Father, we just thank you for Bishop Samuel. We thank you for your people there in Cuba. We thank you, not Cuba, Lord, in Kenya. Lord, I just pray your blessings over all the pastors, all the leaders, Lord, as they are just so committed to your work there. Lord, to bring not only food, not only water, but most importantly, your word to the people, Lord. Lord, we ask that lives would be transformed in all the dimensions that they are, Lord. And Father, I ask that you would establish firmly your church there in this region. Lord, we ask for your blessings and your protection over them, Lord, in this time of COVID, in this time of famine and drought, Lord. We ask for your blessings upon them in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, let us continue to be a house that resources your house there in Kenya. We bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Awesome. Well, as you guys know, we have been pressing in to get into the Lord's Word quite a bit. Who's got their Bibles with them here today? Awesome. Who's got their notebooks here with them today? Yes. I keep getting messages of, hey, I bought a new Bible because 
I'm supposed to get my Bible. Or, hey, I got a new notebook and I'm ready to take notes. This is good stuff because we need to be consuming this. We need to be paying attention to what's going on. Um, But I'm going to take a real quick pause. I'm going to ask Josh Wagner to come forward because he's going to share about a class we have coming up this fall, next month. And uh, it's it's important to me, and I think it's timely for us as a people to have this class. Josh, if you come forward, use this purple mic here. Turn on. Hello. Oh, there it's working. <laughs> uh, before I begin, I would like to thank everyone. Uh, a lot of you know, and especially those in the prior chain, know that I had uh, orthoscopic hip surgery uh, uh, earlier uh, last month. And so I wanted to thank everyone who uh, supported me during that time, everyone who prayed for me, everyone who brought me food, and everyone who's there for me when I needed them. As you can see, God has been very gracious to me. I'm walking around, not running quite yet, but uh, everything is going well on that front, and I wanted to, wanted to thank everyone who's involved in that. God has truly blessed me with every single one of you and all of your support, and thank you so much for everything that you have done for me. So... Pastor Jay and I have been talking on and off even even before uh, before the bug came around, but that kind of put put a hold on that. But this so this has been in the works for quite a while. We have a new class coming up: Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. And so I wanted to come up here and sort of give my pitch as to why this is so important. And I uh, and sort of to drill this home. I wanted to take us into the Bible. So one of, one of the passages that really sticks out to me is when, when Jesus goes off into the desert for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil. One of the significant tests that uh, he puts him through, and the one that sort of has sort of buried its way in my heart, is the devil brings Jesus up to the top of the temple and he says, you know, if, if, if you jump off, God will save you, because it doesn't say in the Bible that if you fall, you'll be brought up on wings of angels. And Jesus says, it also says, don't test the Lord your God. And so we always hear, and this is true, this is very true, that when we go into the Bible, that the Holy Spirit guides our interpretation, and that when we, when we read with the Spirit, our, uh, we are gaining access not only to the written word of God on the page, but the word of God which comes down from heaven, from the Holy Spirit. And that is very true. However, that is no reason to tempt the Lord our God. So what I intend to do here and what I want to give to anybody who takes this class is the knowledge, the tools, and everything you need to approach the Bible with the respect, the dignity, the knowledge, the wisdom, and understanding that such a monumental task deserves. The Bible deserves to be read with the intensity that we can give to it, with the greatest intensity we can give to it. So I'd like to invite every single one of you who is willing, who is able to come, so that when we read the Bible, we are reading it with the proper respect, the proper dignity, and not going into it expecting the Lord our God to give credence to our ignorance. So that when we come to it, 
we come to it with the Holy Spirit and that we can get the most out of God, the most out of the Holy Spirit, because when we're coming to it, we're coming to it from a better place than if we were just to open it up and not, not really know what we're doing when we're approaching it. So, that one. Oh, um, it, I, I believe it's the first Wednesday in October. The first Wednesday in October, and we're, it's going to be at 7 o'clock, I believe. Um, all right. Yep, so it's going to be here in the, in the sanctuary from 7 to 8 o'clock every Wednesday in October and November. It'll be, be about an hour each session. And there is a book that you're going to have along with this too, Josh? Uh, yes. Um, it was, oh gosh, I've been reading it so long. I we'll have it in the, yeah. uh, in the announcement that goes out in the events. You'll see it uh, likely this week. We're going to be putting it out there so you can sign it up, sign up for it online. So every Wednesday, October and November. Uh, you remember that we've said uh, over the course of this last year that we need to be both spiritually literate and biblically literate. Okay? So we've been pressing into the word here. This is to give you the tools to understand how to approach the Scripture because it is, there's different types of literature as you go throughout Scripture. And if you're not sure what you're facing, you can mishandle it. We want to be those who rightly divide the Word of God. Okay? So Josh's class is it's like hermeneutics, for those of you who know that word, hermeneutics 101. And it's to get us here at a good, solid foundation. And my hope is that we have other classes that follow beyond this. So I would consider this to be a biblical literacy 101. Good starting place for us, and we do invite everybody to come to this class. We're not doing any other classes this fall. So if you're looking for a class this fall, come on Wednesday nights. We're going to get into the Word together, and this is going to provide you great tools to do that. So, Josh, thank you very much. Well, thank you for giving me the platform, and thank you for all giving me your time, and I hope to see you there. Awesome. Josh came to me to pitch that idea at a time we realized we really need to be getting into the Word a lot more as a people. And so we said, this is very timely. And what you heard him talk about there is a hint towards apologetics, right? Jesus is having an apologetics discussion with the devil. We need to be those who are able to defend Scripture and defend our faith with Scripture and not be, not be brought in and hoodwinked by, uh, by mishandling the Word of God. So this is like he said, very important that we as a people are aware of, of the Scripture and how we are to rightly handle that. So with that, let's pray before we open the Scripture and start handling it here today. Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing here today. We thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you have been opening your word to us over this time. And so we ask once again, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to us today through the word of God. We ask that you would Show us things we've not seen before. We ask that you would reveal Christ to us. We ask, Lord, that we would see once again just the awesomeness and the holiness of who you are. We thank you, Lord. It is a privilege that we can come and gather together in such a way and focus on you. Thank you, Jesus. I ask for your blessings over this message. Amen. All right. We're actually going to be picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. We've talked about for just a, a brief overview for those of you who have not been with us for the past couple of weeks. I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons because there's a lot of richness that the Lord's brought out for us during this time. Looking all the way back to covenants that were made with between God and Abraham and Hebron. Coming forward to David there at Hebron before he goes and brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to Jerusalem. 
And then we, we spoke last time about what took place as he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And then last week, we just had a wonderful time here in the presence of the Lord as we, we recognize the things that he's been teaching us over this time about just the, the importance of us hosting his presence well. And us as the people of God coming together in unity with one heart and one mind, with one focus being upon him. Obeying his word and not only being familiar with the Lord and relational and intimate with him, but not coming into a place of familiarity and commonness with the presence of the Lord, but recognizing that he truly is holy and he is awesome and he is above all things. And there is a, there is a holy fear that we have in hosting the presence of the Lord. And I think the Lord did a refreshing time for us as a people last week as we looked at this freshly and said, where have we allowed his presence to become too common for us? We really need to be, as a people, coming each time recognizing that he is awesome. He is above all things. And it it requires of us a life that is committed to him and his word and seeing him do the things that he wants to do. There's a submission for us as a people and coming into alignment with God's ways. So, what we're going to be doing now is shifting into the time, following the Ark of the Covenant, into when Solomon builds the temple for the Lord. Because this is a, another iteration of what takes place with the presence of God among his people and the establishment of the presence of God in a prominent place within the nation of Israel. And there's some incredible things that take place here that I think we want to be looking at. Now, this isn't the end of our journey through this. We're moving on forward towards the New Testament and what God does there. So along the way, you're going to see a trail of of what's taking place with the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God with the people of God. And this brings into uh, the situation the temple the temple that Solomon uh, builds for the Lord. So we're going to pick up in First Chronicles chapter 17. And this is after everything has happened that we've, we've spoken about with David coming in um, and establishing the Ark of the Covenant and setting up it there in the tent in Jerusalem. So if you're with us here for the first time, uh, and it's the, if you're with us here for the first time recently, I uh, just want you to to put your, your running shoes on with your scripture because we're going to be we're going, to be going through it. We've got some ground to cover here. And we're mostly going to be spending time in the, in the Chronicles today because that's one of the locations where we find this, um, this passage of, of history in the nation of Israel. So I'm going to start reading here in, in chapter 17, verse 1. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, a few, few weeks ago, we were in Haggai, and we were looking there. This is, that, that's much forward, farther forward in the future, where God is saying, Look at all you're doing with building your houses as you're reestablishing Jerusalem. You're building all your houses, but my house is lying in ruins. So here we are on the other side of that in history, where David's saying, my goodness, I have this palace with all this paneling and it's beautiful and all this. And, and hey, man, the Lord's house is out there in a tent. 
I mean, how noble of me to bring him here into a place of prominence within Jerusalem. However, there's a, a real weird juxtaposition as to what I'm honoring here. And so he has it in his heart to build him a house. That night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever have I moved with all the Israelites, uh, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's saying, I've never required this, but you're not the one to build it for me. Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will no longer oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning." And have done ever since the time I I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go up to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I, I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, As I took it away from your predecessor, I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So this is where we talked about and referenced two weeks ago about how God makes a covenant with David and about his line. This is where he's making that that covenant. And he's speaking both about Solomon and about Christ in, in this line here. When he starts talking about his throne being established forever, we see that repeated again then in, uh, in Isaiah as he's talking about the Christ, the Messiah who's coming. And that comes through the line of David. But the building of the house here has both an immediate future and a, and a much farther distant future, an eternal future. And in the immediate future, God reveals to David that it's Solomon that's going to build his house and not David. And so when we fast forward here, to chapter 21, we see a really interesting situation that pops up that initiates a lot of activity for David. So we know it's in his heart to build a temple. We know it's one of his sons, and I don't think it's yet revealed to him in that time, it isn't, who that son is going to be. But we know that it's going to be Solomon, ultimately. And the Lord uses a situation to establish where this temple is going to end up being. So in in chapter 21, we find the scenario where David has a census drawn of all of his fighting men in Israel. And the Lord uses this as a moment to establish that location for where he's going to build the temple. So let's start here in 21 verse 1. So this is sometime later, okay? Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, 
and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me, so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My lord the king, why are they not all my lord's subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. What was so wicked about what David was doing? He's just counting his troops. Shouldn't a king know how many troops he has so he can send them into battle? I mean, he is a warrior king. He does have people that he's fighting. Shouldn't he know? While it's not clearly stated in Scripture, I believe what the heart of the matter is, is that David's putting his faith in his, in his horsemen, in his chariots, in his fighting men, and not in the Lord. And so the counting of this is, uh, how much do I have and what can I go and yield, rather than what we see David doing in so many other times in his life and in his leadership. Lord, should I go and attack them there? Should I stay? Hey, David, yeah, go attack them, but make sure you go around this way and bring these guys with you. So David's in a place now where he's, he's trying to command his army, and how great is David? And his trust is in his men and not the Lord. That's a very significant thing for us as we're looking at the whole picture that we've been in. Because, remember, it's, we've spoken about the ark. It's not about the what has become an idol for the people of the ark. Let's bring the ark in and we'll win. Not that time, because they didn't go and inquire of the Lord, and it wasn't that they were bringing the Lord into the battle, it was that they brought the ark into the battle. And God said, I'm not going to have any of that. It's me that you want. And I want you to want me. So here's David, and he's, he's counted his men, and now this is... It all comes around. He realizes, oh my goodness, I've put my hope in the strength of my men, not in the Lord. And he's now, he's in deep doo-doo, and he realizes it. Okay, so we're going to pick up in, in verse 8 here. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. When you're a king and you're taken to the woodshed, it has implications for all those who are under your care. David's familiar with this. Remember, we spoke about how Uzzah lost his life because they didn't, David didn't lead the right way. He put the ark on an ox cart when he should have inquired of the Lord. He should have gone back and seen, oh, the only way this should ever be moved is by the Levites carrying the ark on the poles as God designed this to be. And that was a sobering moment for him. This is another deeply sobering moment for him. Okay, so Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three years of months being of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. 
none of those are good options. None of them are good options. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And this is a very specific place. This is a very specific place. Threshing floors throughout Scripture are places where there is there's work done before the Lord. And this, it's a physical place of working. But we see the threshing floor show up in, in other places, uh, such as uh, Gideon. He's, at, he's, threshing, he's threshing in a wine press, right? But he's, he's threshing before the Lord. We have... Um, in the history of David's lineage with Ruth and, and Boaz, they are at the threshing floor when everything comes together for them to end up moving forward together in marriage. And that is in David's lineage. And here, at a threshing floor, God, the angel of the Lord, stops. Now here, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. David has the heart of a shepherd. He is a shepherd. He has the heart of a shepherd, heart of a father. He says, Take me, not them. I'm the one that did the wrong thing. And he's, he's watched 70,000 of his people, his fighting men, have been slaughtered already. And here it is at the threshing floor. And it stopped. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that, God, that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arana was threshing wheat... He turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Arana looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Arana said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. Now, a couple weeks ago, we spoke about Abraham, who was purchasing that spot there in Hebron, right? The plot of burial ground for his family. And remember, there's a similar back and forth that took place there. I'll, I'll just give it to you. What is this amongst us? You know, you're, you're a prince among us. We would be honored to give this to you. This is a similar type of conversation that's taking place here with David. And look at his response. But King David replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying the full price. 
I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Sacrifice costs us something. If it doesn't, it's not a sacrifice. This king recognizes that. He says, no, this has to cost me personally something. This isn't coming from the royal treasury. This is David. I have to purchase this because I am the one who has sinned here, and I need to make restitution with the Lord here. And this is, what, this is where he has led me to. Now remember, when David went to go establish his throne in Hebron, was that his idea? No, he said, Lord, do you want me to establish a throne here in Judah someplace? Yeah, I do. Well, where would you like me to do it? I want you to do it in Hebron. Okay, he's obedient, and he goes and does it. Now God says, go buy that, and I need you to build an altar there for me. And so, yes, sir, he goes and does that. So David paid Arana 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Yeah, could you, yeah. Could you imagine fire coming from heaven and consuming this offering? We see this take place in other, other places. What that, is a, what that signifies is God has accepted and received that offering. Interestingly, when Gideon made an offering to the angel of the Lord, fire came and consumed that as well at another threshing floor. Different location, another threshing floor. Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time on the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before, before it to inquire of God, because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That's an important statement right there. David, out of his failure in this moment, is led by God to purchase the threshing floor in that place where wheat had been threshed, grain had been threshed, became the place of the altar in the temple of God when it was time to build it. God chose that location. And he used the circumstances of David's leadership and his rulership to bring him to that place. And that's the place where the temple gets built. Now, we know that David isn't going to be the one to do this. And it's right here where we see him recognize that Solomon's going to be the one who does this. He begins to prepare for the building of the temple. Which I think is just one of the most beautiful things that David's probably ever done. He is so committed to the Lord, his God, that even though God said, Listen, you've got too much blood on your hands. I can't allow you to build it. 
but I'm going to let your son build it, and I'm going to establish your lineage through him. David says, okay, I get it, you're right. Then I'm going to give everything I can to this to make sure that that this actually comes to pass. I'm going to make sure that we start cutting stones for this thing. I'm going to start laying away resources for the house of God to be built. In fact, I'm going to make sure that we, we now have a location for where that's going to be. But the design of this temple, what it's going to look like, he's all into this. And he recognizes that it's his son that he's preparing to do this. And that means he has to establish his son and he has to establish the rule of his son. So even though he's not the one who gets to do it, much like Abraham and Moses and others, where the gods made the promise, he's doing everything he can up until the time of his death to make sure that it's successful. What a heart of a father. He's no perfect man. But what is exemplified here is absolutely beautiful. In chapter 22, starting in verse 5, we find this. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. I just love how he says, my, my son Solomon is young, young and inexperienced. When we think about Solomon, we tend to think about the wisest king who ever lived on the earth. Who, when offered by God, when you think he could want, he chose the right thing. How amazing and magnificent is this man. And he truly was. But he was also a kid for a time. And it was at the hand of his father that he learned to ask for wisdom. If you go into, I think it's Proverbs 3, Solomon talks about how when he was young and tender in years, how his father told him, get wisdom. So he was obedient when God said, what is it that you want? He was obedient to his father. And all the other blessings flowed from that. says here in verse 6, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. I love how that is capitalized. The name of the Lord my God. But his word, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many years, many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you. And may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. 
I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And I love this next statement. And you may add to them. What is he recognizing? I've given everything I can, but the Lord is going to require more. So this isn't quite sufficient. So you can add to them. You have many workmen, stonecutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work, in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord be with you. And then it says beyond that that he, he commends and orders his leaders to, to help Solomon in this. So he's, he's not just talking to his son. He's then standing his son up with all those that are going to be there beyond his time and says, you need to help him. He's going to be your king, and this is part of what his tasking is going to be, and lend yourself to that. We go here into 1 Chronicles 29. We see, after it speaks in here about some of the specific things that David does in preparation, and I encourage you to read uh, 1 Chronicles 28 and beyond to see more of that. But here in 29, verses, 1, uh, verses 10 through 20 is where we see David's prayer about the, about the temple. This is a rich prayer by someone who's been walking with the Lord a long time. And he's ready to hand things off. He says this, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God our Father is God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We spoke about that earlier today. Everything that David has given, because it's just spoken about all the different things, the gifts that David has given out of his own treasury to the temple. And he's saying, look how blessed we are. But we're blessed because you've blessed us. And the, the very... Actions that we're able to take here is because you've allowed us to do that. It's all yours, and we're giving back to you. This is, this is stewardship 101 by the king in Israel. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O oh Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I, I have, I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O oh Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the King 
the Lord, the God of their fathers, they bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. Here David, at the end of this prayer, after he's recognizing, Lord, this is just amazing that we're able to do this. And at the end of my life, everything's teed up to go. He's humbled before him. And what does he do? He prays that the intentions of his heart and the focus of his heart and what he has learned would be carried forward by the people. That they would, they would inherit that heart intent. Because David knows and recognizes it's out of the heart that everything flows. All of our actions flow from that. And the issues that had come up for Israel prior to him and during his reign came from a place where he'd lost track of having his heart completely intent on the Lord and following him. And so David's praying over the people, God, let them keep that heart. And let my son wholeheartedly serve you. So when we skip across here after David's passed. In Second Chronicles chapter 2. This is after Solomon has had his encounter with the Lord at Gibeon. After he's sacrificed a thousand bulls before the Lord. And here he is. Making preparations to build the temple. Because remember, there was more to do. And so he actually reaches out to King Hiram of Tyre, who is a friend of David's over the years, and requests help from him. Because he knows there's more that needs to be done, and he needs the skill of that man and his people to help him. And so he sends this message. This is Second um, Chronicles chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He conscripted 70,000 men as carriers and 80,000 as stonecutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. Solomon sent this message to Hiram, king of Tyre. Send me cedar logs as you did my father David when you sent him cedar to build a palace to live in. Now I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God and to dedicate it to him for burnt burning fragrant incense before him for setting out the consecrated bread regularly and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening and on Sabbaths and the new moons and at the appointed feasts of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. The temple I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except it's a place to burn sacrifices before him. I'm going to stop there. Solomon recognizes the temple I'm going to build is insufficient. I'm going to do everything in my power. It's going to be the greatest temple ever created. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to have gold all over the place in this thing. I'm going to build it with the best materials, with the best stone cutters, with the best... Masons with the best, everything. Everything is the best. I'm going to follow this to the letter, and it will be insufficient. It can't contain him. The best I can hope to do is burn sacrifices before him here. And the most I can hope for is that his presence will come. That is a profound recognition. And it's one that we have to carry with us because we know now, standing on this side of history, that the temple was insufficient. It proved insufficient every time they built it. 
Because this is just the first time. Every time they built it, it was insufficient. Because God had a, a greater plan. And remember, he said earlier, when did I ever require you to build me a temple? He had the, he had the model of a tent. We live inside a tent, remember? Same language. This is our tent. We're moving towards that understanding as we get further on here. But here he says, this is, this is not going to amount to what it needs to be, but it's going to be everything that we can do. So then we see here in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. There's some discrepancy about chronologically when this took place. But what we know is this is about four to five hundred years after they left Egypt. Some say it was 440 years, 480 years, depending on translation. But the point is it's somewhere around 400 years. And the temple then goes and lasts for another 400 years. And that 400-year period is an interesting period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. I just think that's an interesting bisection of time that we see take place in the history there. But here is where it talks about he built it on the right location. It was where his father had bought the threshing floor. But look at what it's called there, Mount Moriah. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. I tell you what, whoever wrote this Bible was a genius. As we're talking about large distances of time separated by people, and God has a plan. And remember, David didn't come up with the idea to go to Arana, the threshing floor there. God made that clear to him. This is Abraham being tested. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He now has his son Isaac, and Ishmael and Hagar have been sent away. And so listen to what God says to him. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son. Wait, I thought he had two sons. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, I trust that the Holy Spirit is able to lead people to the same location. And here, David, way forward in history, is led to a threshing floor on Mount Moriah and purchases that as an altar. Place of burnt sacrifices. And here's Solomon, 
David's son builds an altar. And you move forward enough in history, you'll find another one and only son who is sacrificed near Mount Moriah. Because God knows what he's doing. He cares about locations. We've talked about that. We've spoken about it, about Hebron. We've talked about how he, he watches locations over history. And the enemy is tr- always trying to overtake locations. The temple on the mount, the Dome of the Rock, is now over this location. Because the enemy is always trying to take back these locations. So that's, if you don't know, that's controlled by Islam now. And it's a location you can't get into. God cares about these things, and the enemy cares about these things too. So here it is. He, he builds the temple there. Now, in chapter 5, we see Solomon having completed the work, and this is when he then brings the ark to the temple. Because the ark is still in the tent in the city of David. He's got to take it a little bit further north now into the temple. We see this in, in verse 2. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the men of Israel came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. I think this is interesting. So this is, this is the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, which is the most level playing field for all of Israel. Everybody's in the same type of tent. doesn't matter how much money you have. Everybody's in the same type of tent. And here they are as the people of Israel coming together at this time, unified. All the heads of, of the tribes are coming together to bring, just like when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. Remember this? All of Israel comes to do this. And here they are again. When all the elders of, the, of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests, who were Levites, carried them, carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. That is a lot of sacrifice that's going up there. So much that they, it could not be counted. So they bring the ark of the covenant up. They place it in the temple in the most holy place, underneath the cherubim. These cherubim are huge. They've got a 15-foot wingspan, both of them. Wingtips are touching each other and touching the sides of the walls of the most holy place, and the Ark of the Covenant is placed below that. These are huge, huge structures in that most holy place. And we pick it up here in verse 11. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regarding, regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were the musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jedathan, and other sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. This sounds like two weeks ago, right? Right, when they brought everything into Jerusalem? They were accompanied by 120 priests surrounding, uh, sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison 
as with one voice, to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. And this is, this is something that Israel has been declaring since the beginning of their time, that He is good and His love endures forever. And look what happens. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. It was so thick in that place, they couldn't perform their duties. The overwhelming presence of the Lord fell in that place and filled the whole temple. I love how today we were singing, Fill me up, God. Fill me up. Fill me up till I overflow. There's a context for us. Remember, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a picture here for us of what takes place in us when the presence of God comes and completely takes over. If you haven't been in this place in your journey with the Lord yet, I desire it for you greatly. Where you're brought to the place where you cannot do anything but fall down on your face before Him because all of your faculties and all of your executive functioning is now completely submitted to what He's doing in that moment. And the best you can do is nothing. If you've not been there, I greatly desire that God brings you to that place. It is humbling, and it is awesome. Not awesome like surfing awesome. Awesome like the awe of the living God and his presence so permeating you that you don't want to do anything that would cause him to lift. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And then he goes and he dedicates the temple. And he dedicates the altar. And he makes a request of the Lord that this is a place where we can come when we have sinned and we can, we can lay out our offerings and our sacrifices before you and that you would hear and you would see. And he's... Here's the king at this altar with his arms. He's kneeling and he's got his arms raised up to God. And he, when he comes to the end of this, he says this. This is Second uh, Chronicles 6, verse 40. I, I encourage you, this week, go back and read through all of these chapters yourself. Because you need to hear the words that he's requesting. You need to hear the things he's saying. And I don't have time enough today to get through all of it with you. We're, we're consuming a lot of this. But there's much more depth to this. It says, Now, my God, may your eyes be opened and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. And listen to this in, verse, in chapter 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. 
when his father purchased that place and offered sacrifices to the Lord, what happened? Fire came from heaven, consumed it. God accepted that sacrifice. And here's his son now, years later, having completed what was in the heart of his father, the dream that he had to honor God, and he offers this sacrifice before the people, and fire comes, and glory fills the temple. So much so that the priests can't do their duties, they can't enter it because the glory of the Lord is there. All the people see it face down because his presence and his glory is that great. This is not a cheap thing. This is not a cheap thing. We should never view his presence as a cheap thing. It's never just another Sunday. It's never just another Wednesday night. It's never just a whenever it is that his presence comes. It is a magnificent, costly thing. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King and Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. I can't even imagine. Just pause there for a second. Have you ever tried to imagine what that would look like? What the logistics of that would look like? That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of people heaving animal bodies back and forth. This took days for them to do this. There's, there's three weeks of, of time that they go through in the dedication of the temple and all the celebrations and everything that they do through this. It is a monumental undertaking that he is leading the nation through to establish the temple. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple to God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord, and there he offered burnt offerings and fat to the, of the fellowship offering, because the bronze altar he made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat portions. There's just so much that's going on. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him. A vast assembly, people from Lebo, Hamath, to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day they held an assembly, for, for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart, for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. We'll conclude at this point right here. We sang today about his faithfulness. He is so faithful. He was faithful to follow through with David. He was faithful to follow through with Solomon in establishing his throne. And he was faithful with his presence showing up. And after this, we see coming that promise that's one of our favorite promises in Scripture that when we see famine and plague and things like this show up in our land, that the call for us as the people is he called them to humble themselves and pray for the Lord to heal their land. That was his, his response to Solomon. It was specific to them in that time. 
but it gives us instruction on how we're to approach the Lord as God's people. The principles stay true today. This is a really important thing for us to to recognize. Everything that you just heard, all of the blood sacrifices, everything that was, was burned before the Lord, everything that he received and accepted in that time is still a lesser blessing than what we have received. Think about the magnitude of that. It's still insufficient. It gives us a picture of how costly Christ's death on the cross is for us. And the great lengths that God has gone through over the entire history of mankind to set a stage, which we'll go into this next week, set a stage for the pure and spotless Lamb to come and take away the sins of the world. The temple was never the ultimate goal. It was a big goal. It was a major milestone in God's history with his people. But there's a better promise coming. There's a better son coming. There's a better sacrifice coming. And it's because of everything that the Lord has done that we can understand the context of the sacrifice that he actually brought forward in his son. We're going to talk about that next, next week. But I want us as a people to recognize, as we've been hearing here today, and as we've been hearing over these past weeks, the lengths that God has gone through to demonstrate the importance of his presence the importance of his covenant, the holiness of who he is, the greatness of who he is. That shouldn't distance us from him. That gives us context for knowing just how wonderful a relationship we have with the living God, made possible by his son, who came and allowed himself to be a sacrifice for us. The God of the universe cares about every hurt that you have. He cares about every challenge you face. As much as he had predestined Solomon as the one to build his temple, he has a destiny for you. As much promise and faithfulness and consistency as we've seen in the scripture here, over millennia, he's been building into your life as well. And it doesn't end with you. He's looking to bless lines through you. Family lines. Whether it's your natural line or it's a spiritual line that you will feed into. God's promises are true. They will outlive you. We're like a breath. We're like a vapor. We're here for a moment. But his plans that we get to come into when we agree with him and when we obey him It's solid rock. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I know many of us have lamented the unity that we had just after 9-11 
and where we are today as a nation, as a people, as a church, however you want to slice it. There's vastly different situations there. You know, in that moment, if you were American, we rallied around America. There's probably people hearing this right now who weren't even alive when that happened. Because that was 20 years ago. I think with all the shaking we've been through, as much as many of us still have that identity as American, God's calling us as his people to unite in Christ. There was an attack on our nation at that time. I think there's still an attack on our nation going on right now. But I think there's an attack on the body of Christ and and an effort to divide us. I'm anticipating the Lord calling us now to a deeper place of unity. Not around our nationality, but our our heavenly identity. Like Pete was saying earlier today, you're a new race. You are a new race of people drawn out from all nations, drawn out from every tribe and every tongue, and that is present reality. And we as his people have to start living in that place. Because everything else that would identify us as anything else is being shaken and being used to cause division between us. God's calling us as his people to come together, unified in him. I can't wait to see what happens in his presence, which shows up as we do that. And here at our Father's house, we're committed to seeing those things happen. We have a history of that taking place. And I think the Lord's going to expand that even more. We as the people of God, not just here at our Father's house, but we as the people of God, as one new race, as one new nation, a holy nation of kings and priests representing the kingdom here in, he- in earth, in time and space, should be and are a completely different reality than what the world could ever offer. It's always been insufficient. It doesn't matter how many cows and how many sheep you sacrifice, none of it's enough. Only by the blood of Christ. Only by the blood of the Lamb. That we would stand as a testimony in the earth of his goodness. Would you stand? We have some words that we'd like to share with you here this morning that came in before we pray. Okay, I have one one word. Uh, the person who submitted this, and I think this speaks to what to, to how Pastor Jay was closing out his message. They saw a tiny cartoon man inside a small circle who believed what his creator said he would be and do. This small figure turned into a giant Herculean man who was boldly taking giant strides way beyond his known arena of life. Focused up on high, not inward, he was no longer limited by his perception of himself, which was all that was restraining him. And two pondering questions to go along with it. Imagine if you truly believed the promises in the word. And imagine if you believed what the Lord has spoken to you personally. What would you do?
Solomon had the benefit of a father who knew who he was. We don't all have that. Not in our earthly sense. But if you're in Christ, you have a heavenly father. I am who you say I am. He has a purpose. He has a destiny. He has a calling for you. And what you see in yourself is far less than what he sees in you. And he's the authority on who you are. You can go to the bank on that. Somebody in here or online heard that word today. Heard that word today. And you might have a hard time believing it. But you're wrestling inside right now with what God's saying and how you're feeling and where your head is. So we're going to pray over that right now. Father, I thank you for your great love. Lord, whoever it is right now, and I know it can be far more than one, far more than ten, far more than fifty, who hear that word and say, Lord, I, I just don't know. I ask, Lord, that you would break the bonds that would keep them back from following you. Lord, that would keep their eyes withdrawn and drawn down. Lord, right now I ask that they would lift their eyes to you. They would believe, Lord, what you're saying. They would hear that whisper that would call them to more. That when they take that step, Lord, it would be a miraculous stride. And they would be surprised, Lord, at where you're taking them. Lord, I ask that you would bring your people through those moments, Lord, that establish them as who they are in you. In new ways, beyond the boundaries they've put around themselves or allowed to be put around themselves, Lord. That you would release the chains, you would cut the chains, remove the bonds, Lord, that would keep them from going there. We speak freedom in the name of Jesus. We bless your people, Lord. I bless your people right now, Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would awaken in people things that you're speaking about them, Lord, that are far beyond anything they've ever believed before. Lord, I thank you for your empowerment to take them there, and I thank you for the processes you will do to reveal yourself to them along those pathways. I bless them right now in Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. We're going to do some communion real quick, so please take a moment to open that up. If you're at home, I know you're already ready. Maybe. We've spoken today a lot about blood, about sacrifice, about burnt offerings, about consecration, about all that was done for that temple. Jesus Christ is better. He's better. He's the only way. 
When we come to the table of the Lord to take communion together, we are remembering His body broken for us and His blood poured out for us. This was a plan from the beginning of time. God knew that what He was about to create was going to need a rescue plan. Jesus is that rescuer. All of history points to him. And everything that we've spoken about today is only types and shadows leading up to the real, which is him. When we take this wafer or bread or whatever it is that you have with you, we're recognizing that his body was broken for us. When we drink this cup, we remember that his blood was poured out for us. And we remember also that we are now the body of Christ. We get to participate in his sufferings. And we also get to participate in his glory. Jesus, we just thank you right now for everything that you did for us on the cross. We thank you that you're pure and spotless. We thank you that you took every step that you needed to take. You spoke everything that you needed to speak. You did every action that was necessary to fulfill every prophecy about you. And you finished that work on the cross. We thank you, Lord. We come and remember your body broken for us. Your blood poured out for us, Lord. Which is greater than everything else that we read about today. We thank you for that testimony. We bless you. In Jesus' name, take, eat, and drink. All right. Our ushers will come and pick up your cups. Ask that you guys look for that announcement coming out this week about the Bible class that we spoke about here today. Sign up for it, okay? Come out for this. This is going to be a good time. It's an important time for us as a people as we get further into the Lord's Word together, as we grow in our education and our wisdom and our knowledge and understanding of how to rightly divide the Word of God. Okay? It's not just about smart pastor, dumb sheep. That's a bad model. We want smart pastor, smart sheep. Okay? Because God has a work of service for you in every sphere of influence that you're in to represent Him well there. And we need to know his word. Father, bless your people today. Thank you for everything you've done here today, Lord. We ask your grace and your peace and your wisdom and your protection over your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Say hey to somebody on your way out. If you don't recognize them, get to know them.